The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds, smart investing starts here. Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who have been successful because they found that point in their lives to give themselves permission to go and do it. The genesis of this podcast is based on the inspirational lives of Muhammad Ali and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and their world-changing impact. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by iris.xyz, the most helpful place for advisors to come to to grow their minds and businesses. Power your advice at iris.xyz. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. And today, we're welcoming Doug Fritz, who's the founder and CEO of F2 Strategy, which is a technology consulting firm in the Bay Area. Hey, Doug. Hey, Doug. You know, I'm really excited to talk to you today and get some clarity around technology in our industry. How does that sound? Sounds great. Hopefully, you're giving the clarity, not me, because, you know, no one's clear about wealth management technology, Uh, I would say. Uh, It is an opaque and and scary thing for a lot of folks. Well, it's not going to be me providing the clarity. That's why we're having you. So, Oh, wait. I have to give the clarity. I got you. Okay, I'm ready. So how do you think about, this is a really broad question, how do you think about technology and financial services? Question. Um, Yeah, I think... uh, I think about technology in terms of uh, where it where it helps, um, but we, we spend a lot of time thinking about where it hurts. And um, you know, I think that that as a broad brush, as an industry, we used to compete uh, with technology against other wealth management and warehouse firms. Um, and it was always, you know, who who has the better technology, who can do the global trades, who can uh, roll out a, a, a client website first, and. I think over the last 10 years, um, our technology has ended up becoming a much more, um, what was often referred to as a liquid expectations type of a, of a um, problem, where people aren't expecting us to outperform each other. Um, people are expecting us to outperform the experiences they get on Alexa and on getting a, a, a cab to the airport. Um, and these experiences and expectations of the both the, the clients and also the advisors in an organization are coming from outside of the firm. And I think that's the, the scary thing. Um, and so we as an industry have to catch up with those expectations and, and we're, we're falling behind in a lot of cases. We've had two big market corrections over the last 20 years that have delayed a lot of that innovation that didn't happen necessarily in the commercial space. And a lot of firms are, are trying to find their, their pathway forward. And these are firms that aren't necessarily technology experts. They're their investments and client service and planning and 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 product selection and product creation uh, firms, not technology firms, and so they, they struggle to make really good decisions, and that's really where we play. So, as an advisor, how do you know if you're making good decisions with technology? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there, there are there are a handful of models that we see advisors follow. Um, these are broad stereotypes, but um, you know, one stereotype is the the just a head in the sand um, that, hey, I'm, I'm just going to keep using the tools that got me here. And, you know, how on earth could I not be successful 10 years from now if I've been successful for the last 20 and 30 years? Um, we see advisors that uh, um, pick everything. They'll just go and run after the, the, the coolest tools they can possibly see and they spend a bunch of money um, on those tools. Um, 
And then we see advisors that uh, um, really focus on the tools that, that are really specific to them. I think the first two models don't work very well. The head in the sand and the buy everything models don't work terribly well. The ones we see work better for advisors when they think about their tools are um, by answering a couple of key questions. And these are really from, from F2's perspective, the two questions that we always lead every, every conversation with, which is um, what is it about you as an advisor or you as an advisory firm that makes your clients want to work with you? And the second question is, what is it about you and your firm and what you do and how you service them, how you work with them that keeps them here? With all the other firms out there that could court them away. And when, when firms can articulately answer those questions, um, you know, it, it's fairly easy for that advisor to think about their technology because it's whatever tools make them better at the thing that they're already good at that win them clients. And it also lets them, sort of gives them that permission to say, I'm okay being mediocre at the technology that doesn't really add to who I am as, a, as an advisor or who my firm is um, to its clients. And it, it becomes a clarifying question for, for advisors to ask themselves. With so much technology out there and so many different choices, uh, how do they know if they have good technology at all? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think that it, there's always this sense that you're going to need to keep up and 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 catch up with emerging expectations. Um, and so never really wait on what you've got. I think people that look at their technology today and say, um, what I have is allowing me to go faster, provide a better client experience, uh, and tell my story more eloquently, um, then you probably have the right tools. Um, we, we see a lot of people that get caught up in pain points of account opening, you know, needing to, God forbid, they got a, their clients have to go find a fax machine. This still happens today in 2020 where clients have to go find fax machines to send documentation in, in some cases. Um, or you've got advisors or clients that just seem to be spending uh, an ordinary amount of time uh, typing things in and running reports and the administrative, taking time away from spending that time with their clients and their prospects. Um, that's usually our, our benchmark for, for whether or not you have the right technology today. Um, and we, we always like for, for our advisory clients to look forward in the next 10 years and say, what are the types of tools and technologies that I need in the future? Uh, and then how do I build the muscle memory of, of that change and adopting change and thinking about technology into who I am and what my company does? Um, it's actually very difficult for firms to, to make technology decisions every 10 years um, because they're not used to making those decisions, not used to that muscle memory of change and training and, and adopting new tools. Is there a lot of fear out there that if I make the wrong decision, I'm in for a whole lot of money and a whole lot of pain? Yeah, that definitely, I think, drives some of those first examples that I mentioned before. Firms just don't make changes. Um, there are so many choices out there for performance and for rebalancing and CRMs and digital client experiences that um, it, it seems very difficult to make a decision. And we see all the marketing, we get all the demos, um, and it's really difficult a lot of cases to, to, to understand what these tools are, um, how they would work for you. And so a lot of people just just uh, head in the sand. They just, there's that fear drives indecision. Um, and that's probably a mistake, um, but an understandable mistake. I think that, that a lot of the other fear comes into, you know, what is this going to do for, for me as a firm? If I'm spending more money <clears throat> on technology, I'm not necessarily growing, right? We have a lot of advisory firms in the U.S. that are, have grown to be very successful, and they will continue to be successful, but they're not really growing and adding new clients. Um, 
then technology as an expense actually comes as, at a cost of the margin of the firm um, and possibly adoption and, and disrupting the client experience and just sort of moving something or changing something that got someone successful. And that, that drives a lot of a lot of that fear um, in the market. I think that's it's unfortunate, but I think that's something that, that firms are going to either overcome um, because they're they're going to kind of suck it up and, and move move forward, um, or they're going to over the next ten years find themselves increasingly irrelevant, uh, and that will also take care of itself. So, how does an advisor differentiate what's out there? They they all seem to say that the same thing. Is it becoming a more of a brand buy? The the people at the conferences with the biggest booths and the nicest colors and the coolest things, or are they able to really dig down and figure out what's right for them? Oh, what a, what a good question. Um, you know, we look at vendors. Uh, we look at vendors in a number of different ways. Um, primarily, it's that first lens for for our clients. What what are the tools and capabilities that are going to help you be a better you, and are going to be adopted by you and your clients? Cause they just kind of fit what you're doing. Um, one of the other lenses we use to look at technology um, is, is how does it work with my existing tool set? If you are an advisor on the Schwab platform and you want to use a planning tool, um, it's best to look at which planning tools work, work best with your, with your custodian. Um, if you're self-clearing, if you're you know, an independent BD and you're, you're clearing through your broker-dealer um, or you're using a TAMP, um, finding the, the tools that work best in that ecosystem. In a lot of cases, you can look around and see what are the successful practices and firms in my space using uh, and learn from what other people have, have already learned. Um, we also look at, at technology vendors as a, you know, is it a point solution? We call it a point solution, which means it does kind of one thing really, really well. Um, and there are examples of CRMs and of trading tools that just they do that one thing really, really well. Um, and then there are our platforms, you know, think about InvestNet as a platform, right? It does a lot of things, um, some of them very well, uh, but not everything really. Well, in a lot of cases, those platforms um, uh, take the integration of workflows and integration of tasks um, as the primary thing they're doing, and they, they sort of drop off on the depth of that functionality. And so, if you compare to a, a, a Morningstar advisor or, or um, uh, you know, a, an InvestNet um, platform or some of the other broader uh, all-in-one solutions, um, they're never going to be as good as the individual deep dive tools will be. Um, but boy, you get a lot of lift from having the thing pre-integrated. Uh, you have one vendor to work with, uh, and those are great. And I said the last thing to, to look out for, uh, and this is especially true in 2020 uh, with the amount of money that's gone into fintech economy and driven up um, the marketability and the, the profile of firms possibly uh, in, without the, the revenues that have come from, from growing and being stable. You have a lot of firms out there today that that might not survive a market downturn. Um, they may not have the revenues to sustain themselves if we get a contraction and the clients don't come, uh, or they're an AUM-based um, fee and the market's down you know, some large percentage for a protracted period of time. And so we look at that pretty cautiously. We're, we love the new technology. Um, you know, we support moving forward, um, but we never move su support moving forward for our clients at the expense of long-term um, viability as a vendor. I mean, it can be very, very disruptive to a firm if a vendor they rely upon heavily is suddenly out of business or gets bought by one of their competitors um, or significantly reduces the amount of service hours and, and, um, and calculation speed that they didn't expect. And so we always look at the vendors in that sort of critical light as well. Do fintech companies in financial services 
have their eye on helping the advisor or has it turned into an arm race of investors and buying and adding on tools and they're all racing for the end game? Question. Um, I think fintech firms want to supply the, the advisor with the right technology. Um, there's a really interesting, uh, uh, there's probably not a lot of people that get to see this as closely as, as we do in the consulting space. Um, but we work with a lot of fintechs and we work with a lot of advisors of all different sizes. And, and we get this response. And it's, always, it's one of those responses you, you would hear at a, at a cocktail party um, or at a baseball game with a, a bunch of advisors. And, and they'll kind of like loudly proclaim like, what the heck is wrong with the fintech market? Why can't anybody just figure out how to solve this? You know, this just seems like something some software firm would have just solved. Um, and I laugh first. Um, and then I, I asked that advisor a couple of key questions like, um, what is it about your practice that makes you unique? Oh, I do this thing very uniquely and what I do is very specialized and very unique. And we go into those uniqueness uh, examples and you, and you quickly realize that most advisors have one or two or three unique things about what they do, and how they work and the types of investments and the types of clients and their process and what's valuable to them that is not something that anybody else really has. And so you, you can't look at the software industry and say, my gosh, guys, how come you can't figure this out if every single one of these advisors in the country is a snowflake? Um, and so I give the fintech market a lot of credit for, for even trying. Um, and uh, I think for, for advisors also just being aware of, um, you know, those uniqueness, those, un that those sort of unique differences uh, when they go look for software is probably really helpful. Um, but I think your, your second question around meeting in the middle, um, there definitely is a push for um, other firms other than advisory firms. I wouldn't, I won't just call it fintech firms. So I think the asset management space is probably the, they're going to be the biggest contributor to this in the next couple of years um, where other firms that are capable of delivering pretty consistent and elegant end client experiences um, are going to make their way more and more into that advisor and client experience. Well, what, what I mean is um, your trading and rebalancing tool um, like, like an investnet or a, a um, uh, you know, a, a, a Moxie, Advent Moxie or something, um, increasingly is going to have a digital aspect to it that may or may not be delivered to the client. Um, you, you will start to see um, asset managers and fund companies investing in end technology for not just for distribution to their qualified 401k plan, um, you know, robo-like solutions, but more and more to advisors that are using their funds and helping those advisors be successful with the technology. Um, and so there's a there is a definite breaking down of walls between the the uh, the, distrib the asset distribution and asset management uh, aspects, the advisory aspects, and the fintech aspects, and some of the banks as well. Uh, and you're just seeing some of these players enter the market um, in kind of odd odd ways. And so for an advisor, that's probably really good because you have now you don't have to go necessarily and find your own technology. That technology could be knocking on your door increasingly from areas where you didn't expect that 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 knock to come from uh, have a technology bent. You know, it could be that your your custodian has more options or your the asset management firm you work with, the, the fund company you work with a lot, suddenly has a new suite of tools that allows you to to, to use that to win business and manage um, clients on in those uh, in those fund families. And so I think it's um, people are absolutely marching to the to the middle here. But there'll be more players than we probably expected a few years ago in that space. And with all the confusion out there and all the players, this is why you created F2 Strategy. 
Well, there's a lot of confusion on <laughs> players. Uh, I think the reason why I create a few strategies uh, probably has more to do with just wanting to help people. Um, my favorite part of all of my technology and business jobs, and I, I really, um, I came from the industry. I didn't, I didn't necessarily come from a consulting background. I always had roles at firms where um, the organization realized it had a need or there was a risk or an opportunity or a merger and uh, they needed someone that understood both the, the, the business side, the client experience, advisor experience, uh, control risk side, and also the technology side. And I just have always played in that space. I think, um, you know, when I, when I started F2, the real reason was um, I just really loved helping people of, from different organizations. And I was always fascinated by how human beings looked at the challenges of the organization that they were in and made decisions with conviction um, and heart and sweat and just the, the love that they put out there for their, for their, um, for their coworkers and their firms. Uh, and they would work tirelessly to make these changes happen. Um, I just was really inspired by that and, and loved to be helpful in, in those cases uh, and be part of those teams that were making changes. Um, and so it just fit my personality quite well. I would say the second thing about starting F2 was um, I was pretty frustrated with the, the, the management consulting space as a, as a consumer of management consulting resources. And um, it's just part of the, the business model of most consulting firms that um, you have one or two people that, that really understand the space, maybe have never had the job that you have if you're, if you're a, a consumer of those resources, but they, they know the space, they go to conferences, they, they read up, they understand it, and they will surround themselves with very intelligent, hardworking, um, slightly lower cost resources. Um, and so you'd get a team of five, six people and you would get the job done um, but a couple of things always struck me as inefficient that we, we built F2 to solve. One, um, nobody on the team that was working with me never really done the job that I had. Nobody on the team really had to, to live through the decision. They were always there at the beginning. None of them really had to deal with it after it was decided upon, like the tough parts, like adoption and, uh, and dealing with vendors over the, over the years. And so it was very difficult for me to find ex external uh, expertise in that space. And the second piece that... Um, uh, frustrated me with with the consulting industry was that as soon as the project was done, um, all those smart people would would get up and walk out. I would get a nice check and I'd get a nice PowerPoint presentation, and I would be off with my own team um, trying to figure out how to how to do the stuff. Right? They didn't really stick around and help me. It was offered, but it was very expensive. Um, and so we built F2 really as a way to solve both those problems um, with a, a different business model. So what challenges did you see along the way of leaving such a successful corporate world to build this? Holy cow. Um, so I didn't go to business school. Um, I always told myself in my 30s that if I ever needed to go to business school, I would know and I would just go to business school. Uh, and so then I started a business without having gone to business school and realized, oh, this is why people go to business school. So they actually know how to run a business. Um, and so I think I learned the consulting space quickly. Uh, I would say after four years in, in, in building this company, I'm still learning how to run a company, how to build and grow a company and how to hire and scale um, and market and manage uh, all the pieces of actually owning and running a company. That was, that was maybe a, a, a surprise that um, I didn't expect would be as difficult um, and something that uh, definitely pops up as a, as a common challenge and roadblock for me is just how much there is to learn about this business and running a company and growing a company. 
Was there a permission to succeed moment where you looked in the mirror and said, no one's coming, this is me, or has it been a progression of those moments? I have such a smile on my face. Um, it was probably a progression, but at every progression point, um, I think I've done something, I've done two things, I think, that, that, have, um, that have helped. Um, one, um, I knew in my heart that if I ever had to go back to the industry, it was almost certainly a job waiting for me someplace at some large company, right? It was always that, that some sense of safety that I could do it. Um, but along the way, I burned every bridge back to that space I possibly could. And I think that that, that sort of Rubicon crossing, um, those moments where you take a step forward saying, I don't know what's on the other side of this thing, but I'm going to make, I'm, I'm going to make it successful. I'm going to be able to put in all my time and my heart to my mind. And I've got a ton of people around me that are encouraging me to move forward. And I've got great friends in the industry to rely on for guidance and feedback. Um, and I will be successful. I will be, I will, I will risk this and I'll be successful. Um, and I think that that success followed by the risk, um, helps to encourage more success and, and maybe not, hopefully not a lot more risk taking, um, but, but conscious of, uh, adoption of, of the risk of making changes and growing and scaling and, uh, and hiring people. In all these cases, it was that, that sort of permission to succeed was, was, uh, was based on challenging myself and, and burning the bridge back to where I was. Are you at the point where you consider you've been a success or is that still a ways away? Good question. Um, I feel successful in having built grown and then, um, scale the consulting business. This is, I did not choose, I didn't choose an industry or a company to start based on, um, which one was easiest. Um, a significant number of people that, that leave industry to start consulting businesses don't, don't get successful. Don't get to the spot of hiring people and scaling and, and kind of to where we are. And so I think compared to a, a peer group, um, we've done very well. Um, but I think, just even having done it, I'd probably counted it as successful. Um, you know, taking the risk and, and launching out there and, and putting the time and energy in and, and just getting any clients to listen. Um, I think that was success early. And so I think since, since day one, I felt successful in doing it. I've never felt like I was not successful. Um, but, but maybe more in the classic sense, uh, over the last like two years, just really locking in and, and moving forward, especially on hiring people, changes a lot for for um, consulting firm. Um, I feel like it's been it's been a success. There are future successes, I'm sure, that are going to happen. Um, you know, we look forward and we think about um, you know rapidly scaling the business and um, and adding you know getting to, to to 20, 30, 40 employees in the future, and that will happen. But I don't think I'm going to feel any more successful than I do now. And I'll I'll kind of the last thing I'll say is that. The most successful that I feel, and I hire people that feel the same way, is when we have those conversations with our clients and they say, I can't believe how far we've come. I can't believe we've overcome all these challenges and we've significantly moved our business forward. We've, we've brought new advisors in because our technology is so much better. We've kept advisors from leaving because our technology is better. Uh, you know, our clients really understand the value proposition when they look at that report, or they log into their client portal um, or our, our ability to prospect and, and win a t new type of clients that we want to work with of a certain size or type um, is really happening now. And so our client's success becomes a big piece of our success. But that goes back to like just wanting to help people. I think anybody that likes to help people loves to hear stories about how their help paid off. 
So I know that you consult with conferences, you go to conferences, you speak at conferences, and um, you also have um, a little-known conference yourself, a fight club of sorts. Um, what can you tell us about that? Uh, we can't say too much. It's, it's like Fight Club. You don't talk about Fight Club. But um, we do run um, something that we call the Wealth Tech Innovation Board. Um, and it is basically, it's a more formalized version of what I had put together for myself as a, as a wealth management CTO, which is this uh, a, a network, um, a network slash think tank of um, corporate executives from the top wealth and asset management and RA firms in the country that are responsible for making the decisions around the technology and really accountable for the outcome. Um, and so there aren't any vendors, there's no technology firms trying to sell to these people. This is really our, um, our, our think tank of folks that can, can through this group, access their peers um, at all of the major wealth and asset management firms of the country. Um, and we get together frequently to talk about um, what challenges we have in a very confidential um, and, and, and helpful peer-to-peer -peer sharing process. And we, we've begun began it last year, and this is our second year uh, as a formal organization. Um, and it's been very helpful to people. It finally, you know, that's how I used to feel. When I would get in the room with a couple of other CTOs, and it was like, finally someone was speaking my language uh, and someone really understood the challenges of, of, of uh, meeting the needs and the frustrations of advisors while also keeping costs down, while being successful with deployment and, and you know, dealing with executives that, that were chasing every cool hip thing in the market and, and just trying to please everybody um, you know, while, while managing a steady ship. Um, having, having a group like that is, uh, has been very powerful for me personally and being able to expand that to, a, to up to 100 people. I think we should have about 100 per people in that group this year. Um, they found value in it too. So I think we're, 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 we're happy about the, the trajectory there. Did you just say way more about Fight Club than you thought you were going to? I probably said more about, I didn't say that much. It, it is by invite only. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we, we kind of know who we want and we know um, who we're going after. And, uh, um, but yeah, we, 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 uh, we don't talk too much about it. We don't publicly talk about it that much, but it is something that um, for the right folks, it, it makes sense to join. What advice do you have for others who are sitting in that corporate seat that want to branch out and are a little afraid to go out there and, and give themselves the permission to succeed? Oh, what a great question. Um, and, and we do get this. <laughs> I love this because it, I do get a lot of um, my former um, uh, wealth management executives that will have this conversation like, hey, Doug, there's a cool startup in the fintech space. And you know, I think I can be successful, but I've never done this. I've just worked within the four walls of a large company before. Um, I, think, uh, I think passion, if you have passion for, for this or anything else, um, you know, you get, you get one, one trip on earth around the sun, uh, you know, well, one trip on earth, uh, to, to, to follow that passion. And if you're not doing that, um, if you're not doing that because you're, you're worried about, um, the monetary impacts or you won't be successful in doing it. Um, I think there's a whole separate scale, uh, like measurement test on success that people have to think about. We, we give them advice on, which is that like launching out and seeing how you actually act and behave and deal with things without that safety net is hugely liberating for the right people. Definitely was for me. Um, and for folks that are, that are in corporate jobs that are saying like, 
I would love to, to go branch out and do something different. Um, absolutely. If it's, if it's something you've always wanted to do and you, you would never feel quite like complete without doing it, you should, you should leave right now and, and, and take advantage of it. In 2020, it is so much easier to start a business and run a business than it probably was 20 years ago. Um, you know, you have LinkedIn for contacting people. Um, you have all these low cost accounting and, and tracking tools, you know, uh, legal zoom, you can start your company for, for less than a thousand dollars and, and get running, get up and running. Um, marketing tools are so much, so much easier to, to use and, and accessing the right types of clients and network to, to sell what you're selling or to, to manage what you're managing is so much easier. Um, however, it's a heck of a lot of work. And so, uh, I would say anybody looking to do this, that's looking to coast, um, that's the challenge. I, you know, it's, I work twice as hard as I ever worked in corporate America, making probably, you know, half as much, but I'm, you know, 10,000 times happier than I've ever been working in a corporate job. 10,000. That's a lot. Gosh. It's a, it's a, I rounded up. I rounded up a little okay. bit. Okay. How do people find F2 strategy besides F2strategy.com? You can go there, but to find out more about you? Uh, yeah, to find out more about us, um, we are frequent contributors to the, the regular news cycle. So we're Forbes contributors. Um, we've written some things uh, on, on Barron's, uh, Sam Wealth Report. Um, we're often at the Invest conferences, uh, some of the other sort of main conferences. I'm not at uh, 2020 this week, but um, we're, we're judges for a lot of the awards. So uh, I judge for um, a couple of the big, big awards every year. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're, we're in New York and we're, we have, we have New York presence, Midwest presence and West coast presence. Um, and so, uh, probably the best thing is just shoot us an email at, uh, you know, at hello at F2 strategy it comes straight to my phone. Uh, and all my team actually, it's the same access, but, uh, and then, um, yeah. And, you know, we'd be happy to connect anybody with, with our team, but also with some of our clients, um, that have been, that have been happy with what we've done. This has been really enlightening. So thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. For everyone at Iris Media Works, our producer, Jakey Beard, and the Permission to Succeed team, this is Doug Heikinen. Have a good day. The Permission to Succeed podcast is brought to you by Thompson IM Funds, Inc. For more information about Thompson IM Funds, please visit thompsonim.com. Thompson IM Funds. Smart investing starts here.